Good morning. Today's poem and today's reading is by the poet David White, and it's called What to Remember When Waking. And to me, it's better than chocolate cake. In that first hardly noticed moment to which you wake, coming back to this life from the other more secret, movable, and frighteningly honest world where everything began, there is a small opening into the new day which closes the moment you begin your plans. What you can plan is too small for you to live. What you can live wholeheartedly will make plans enough for the vitality hidden in your sleep. To become human is to become visible while carrying what is hidden as a gift to others. To remember the other world in this world is to live in your true inheritance. You are not a troubled guest on this earth. You are not an accident amidst other accidents. You are invited from another and greater night than the one from which you have just emerged. Now, looking through the slanting light of the morning window toward the mountain presence of everything that can be, what urgency calls you to your one love? What shape waits in the seed of you to grow and spread its branches against a future sky? Is it waiting in the fertile sea, in the trees beyond the house, in the life you can imagine for yourself, in the open and lovely white page on the waiting desk? Here's our world. Beautiful and hard things happen all the time. Let us keep our hearts tender and our eyes soft and our words true. Because this is what you and I are about, we know there is no answer in this beautiful and broken world but to love each other and to love ourselves. We bear witness against unnecessary destruction and we gather in community to practice being the person we say we want to be. We cannot do everything. Sometimes we can barely do something. But our effort is never nothing. So let us forget our perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. Say with me. That is how the light gets in. In college, one of the most wonderful professors that I had was Dr. Ginny Powell. 
who after taking her introduction to sociology class and encouraging me to sign up for not one but two women's studies classes where I was the only guy and had to explain all of men And then introduced me to the, this book by Peter Berger, The Sacred Canopy, a sociological analysis of religion that is much better than it sounds. Suggested in my advisory meeting with her that it, perhaps I should consider going to get a postgraduate degree in sociology and one day teach college, just like her. Now, Dr. Dietering had a good alliteration maybe better than Rev Dietering. And I love to try to understand people because we're impossible to understand. So off I went to take the, G the GRE, which I totally bombed. And then I went off to, took enough money to, find, to get an interview at the University of Michigan's PhD program for sociology, where Ginny went. She said it's a great program. And I didn't quite charm my way through the interview all leading to the moment in early December of my senior year when the thin letter arrived in the, my mailbox. And it had the University of Michigan on the upper left-hand corner of the envelope. Is thin good or bad? Hmm. But I, you know, I, I like the song they just sang, Believe in a Better Way. Maybe thin is just like, we can't wait to see you. Come on. Right? But I opened it and there's one page. It said, Dear Mr. Dietering, thank you for your application to the Department of Sociology's Graduate School. We regret to inform you that your application cannot be accepted at this time. We wish you well in your future endeavors. Blah, de blah, de blah. <laughs> Sincerely, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> And you know, it's weird, they always say director of admissions, but it should say director of admissions and rejections, right? <laughs> right? That would be more honest. <laughs> I mean, the acceptance rate like, is like way lower than the rejection rate, so that's what it should be. Now look, it says way more about my privilege than it does about me that aside from not making the basketball team in my freshman year of high school and the time that Molly told me no thank you to the second date, all in the brutal autumn of 1986, <laughs> that I was not accustomed to rejection. It says more about my privilege than it does about me, believe me. Well, you know what they say, said a relative to me at the family Christmas that year. When God closes a door, somewhere he, notice the gender pronoun, opens a window. Now, it wasn't until much later in life that I learned that this line actually became popularized by the sound of music. When Maria is asked to lead, leave the convent she's in and spend a year as the governess of Captain Von Trapp's seven kids. Do you remember this? She uttering the words as she gets ready to knock on his door. Some window. <laughs> Until then, I thought the line was somewhere in the Bible. 
still, it's worth wondering. What have you done when life has closed a door on you? What you do with the discouragement? The, oh my God, what am I going to do now feeling? The trying to look around the room for the window feeling, but only maybe seeing four walls. That feeling. What do you, what do you do? Do you feel like with me that the times that we're in right now feel like closed door times? Yeah? I mean, the politics, the, the polarization, I don't have enough fingers. The health scares in your family, the aging parents that worry about the college applications, our beloved youth. Like, like what's getting closed actually is our hope. <laughs> That's what it can feel like. I mean, do you see windows opening? Is there a crack? Is that how the light gets in? Whatever. Nathan? <laughs> I mean, I get it. This is the way that you and I arrive here every week. We're like, we're looking up. This is how we are. We're like looking up. We're looking out. We're trying to see the windows. We're, we're looking out. But we're also looking down and we're worried and we got doors in our faces sometimes and we're a privileged bunch. After I got that letter and after I graduated, I employed the underrated strategy that has served humanity forever in response to rejection. If we're privileged or lucky enough to have someone at the door back home. I put my worry about my future on hold, and I fled. <laughs> Anyone else ever try this? Where I went is a place that I think I've told us a little bit about before. I went across the country to San Francisco to the Burt Children's Center long since lost to IPOs and money and money and money and money, but home then to these kids that had suffered unimaginable abuse and who under the care of teachers and therapists and counselors were nurtured towards something, I mean, barely, but something like safety and security and health. Now, life had slammed the door on these kids repeatedly and you might say what this place was about was opening, was trying to be a window for them. Or even just a new frame. A new, a, something else to see besides what they had seen. Now, my job, three nights a week and all day on Saturday, like a 15-hour shift, was to basically be a room parent for four boys. And I served up dinner, and I made sure they brushed their teeth, and I read them stories, and I played games with them on the playground. 
But that's not how I first met Manny. I first met Manny, one of the boys assigned to my room, when I first heard Manny screaming at the top of his lungs the most unimaginable creative line of curse words you have ever imagined. Followed by crashes and kicks and body blows. I remember thinking, what have I gotten myself into? What window is this? Says Francis, the grizzled supervisor, come on this way, Nathan. And I followed him down. The, it was like these, these ladder of stairs, like these long steps down the residential hall. There were rooms on the left. And on the right, were these clear glass, plexiglass windows that overlooked the playground. And, you know, San Francisco is hilly, and, and Burt Center was high, it was Alamo Square, high up on the hill. And through the plexiglass, you could see the skyline of the beautiful, that city is beautiful. Can you see it? All the way out. But it was jarring, right? Because outside there's this beautiful vision of the city and then inside there's this kid screaming with fury. Did I mention? I didn't mention. Manny then was nine. But where, where was Manny actually? Like I can hear him, but I can't see him. Okay, says Francis. And he stops and he points to this metal door. It's a closed metal door. This is the pad room. This is where we need to bring the kids when they are in danger of hurting themselves or someone else. Again, I'm thinking, what have I gotten myself into? What window is this? Bleep you, Francis, yells a little nine-year-old voice. Let me out. After which the door that is magnetized shut bounces with the force of one kick and then two kicks and then a shoulder check. It's bouncing. And then stillness. And then, my friends, in the metal door, like high up in the center, there's a little window. And on the little window, I see these little fingers pull a mop of brown, sweaty hair up into the frame, and eyebrows then. I can see, and then these big, up in this window, these big, wild eyes, angry. Scared at his own anger eyes. And the eyes look at me. Who's that? Manny yells. 
And then Francis says to him, we'll talk, Manny, after you're calm. I want you to know that we're not going anywhere. We'll be right here for as long as it takes outside the door. Later that night as part of my first shift, I was asked to to spend a couple hours reading the case files of Manny and the other boys in the bedroom that I was responsible for. Manny's past, he was nine, was so terrible that it's, I can still feel like it was like a door slamming into my innocent face. Manny's nine, but he does not want my sympathy. What he wanted is, was to see how far he could push me, test me, close the door against me to see if, like every other adult in his life, if I would scream at him, hurt him, or leave him. I had my moments. But what Manny was really trying to do, he was trying to figure out if he could trust me. If I was someone who cared about him and the possibility of him, enough to sit outside the closed door. He wanted to know if I would stay there until he was calm and still and not hurting himself or hurting someone else. He wanted to know if if he could peer through the window and see if I was still there. If I would say to him, Manny, I'm not going anywhere, buddy. I'm right here. I'm going to stay here as long as it takes. We can talk when you're calm. Now look, I pray that none of us in this room have had the kind of past and the kind of hurt that Manny did. But I also know this. I know not to trust the bucolic rainy today, the bucolic surroundings that our windows give us. I mean, yeah, there's privilege in this room But I know there are secrets. I know there are locked doors. I know there, in your life, there are windows that are cracked and duct taped shut. I know that you have a hard time, like me, seeing the light. I know there is worry. I hear you worry about your child our country, your parents, your homework, your next move, your marriage, the next election, the upcoming doctor visit, the deadline, the climate. I hear you worry about that mole on your shoulder blade. I hear you 
feel apathetic. I hear you ask, how many marches can we be asked to go to? I hear you ask, how many sermons do I have to hear for God's sake? I hear you say, window? My window is fogged. My window is cracked. All I see is four walls, I hear you say in so many words. I hear you ask, aren't you paying attention, Maria, from Sound of Music? Are these hills alive with music? I want you to know this, thinking about Manny and thinking about me and thinking about you. I want you to know that I get it. I hear it. I feel it. You have my permission to pound on the doors of the church, though gently because they're old. (laughs) If you ever hear in this room, well, you know, if God closes a door somewhere, he's opened a window. I want you to hear that I do not believe in a God that is a doorman or doorwoman, ushering some of you through and closing others of you out. I want you to know that. I want you to know that I don't believe in that. I don't believe things happen for a reason. I don't believe that good things always come from bad things. I don't believe these hills are always alive with music. Maria? Mary Poppins? It's a false theology. Or to use a phrase that makes my ears hurt, it is fake news. But often churches and ministers give out all the time. I'm thinking about that because we're ordaining our beloved Gary today about all the false gospels that that these places give out. Instead, I want us to know this and feel this, that we are in uncertain times and trust is low. We, We don't know how to trust our president. We don't know how to trust our democracy. We don't even sometimes trust our own capacity to keep like doing what we're doing, like doing the commute and the job and the house and the children, if you have any, or the aging body, any of that. Like sometimes we don't even know how to do that. And because of all that, our trust is low. We kind of get how Manny's feeling. I do. And what I want you to know is that we are here. I want you to know that Heather's here, I'm here, your lay pastoral care people are here, your community is here, little guys are here. Our babies, our children, ourselves, we give each other this ability to say outside the door of our life, I am not going anywhere. We're right outside the door. Just breathe.
I did the math. Manny, I think, would be 35 now. I don't know where he is. The best moment, I was there a year. The best moment of our time together was six months in when he finally discovered that he couldn't say enough curse words to make me leave because I actually know quite a few of them too. (laughs) And he couldn't shout me away. And he had he had calmed down enough. The, the most amazing thing is he had learned how to talk about his anger in a way that wasn't violent toward himself or other kids or staff. That he earned six months in his first ever day pass out of that children's center. It was like a golden ticket. Remember Charlie and the Willy Wonka? That a golden ticket to get out. And we, the ticket was to go to the zoo. Manny knew what it meant. I mean, whatever, it's a day trip. But the thing that it meant most of all was that it meant that the adults who cared for him, including me, trusted him. I wonder, was that the first time in his life that he ever knew that? I also knew that he discovered that in the first time in his life that he could trust the adults in his life. And that he could trust himself. The best moment was this. I told you that the center was high up on a hill. And it was me and Manny and one other kid and one other adult. And I had something he had never seen before which was the key to the door that led outside. And I turned the key and I locked the lock and I opened the door at the top of this hill and it's like this window out onto that magnificent skyline that he had never seen. And his eyes were so wide and his mouth hung open. And for the first time in his life, his wide eyes and his open mouth were not expressions of anger and rage and fear. They were expressions of possibility. I tell you this story because I know as I tell you this story, that you are finding yourselves in different parts of it. Some of you are behind that door. Some of you have the capacity to be on the other side whispering, I am not going anywhere. Some of you have your fingertips up on the window and are peering through searching. I think all of you, all of me, are asking, who can I trust? I think all of you, all of me, are looking for possibility. Some of you are angry. Some of you are counselors to that anger. Some of you are doubting 
what's next. And this is what I want us to remember, that we, the whole we-ness of this place, this room, the lives and voices that have been here for hundreds of years, of this community, the God that I believe in, all of that and all of us are here with you. That's what I believe.